This is Everyday Photography Every Day, where you get to listen in on a chat between a photographer, that's me, and a regular human. That's me. With an eye on making your pictures amazing. No technical stuff, no talk of gear or software, just photography for the love of it. We're sponsored by Neomodern.com, bringing concierge photo printing and framing to everyone with a smartphone. I'm Suzanne Fritz Hansen, enthusiastic iPhone picture taker. And I'm Michael Rubin, photographer, founder of Neomodern, and grumpy old man, and we're in San Francisco tonight. Welcome. Hey, Suzanne. Hey, Rubin. How are you doing this morning? Doing really well. How are you? I'm good. Um, today, we have a very different show. We do. Uh, and I'm very excited to introduce to you Jefferson Heyman. Hey, Jefferson. Hello. So, Jefferson, uh, I mean, let's see how to introduce you properly. I... Uh, you know, I grew up with this collection. My father, you know, has been collecting stuff since I was young. But um, around the late 90s, I guess it was the beginning of 2000, um, a, a new artist showed up in our in our work. And I remember kind of putting these pictures into the database. And they were haunting and um, really uh, magical. And I saw the name, Jefferson Heyman. And like everybody in our collection, I just assumed it was like a dead guy from the turn of the <laughs> mid-century. Yeah, <laughs> that's have, what everybody thinks. They have a kind of a, a Stieglitz um, pictorial quality, some of that, that early 2000 stuff. Uh, anyway, I didn't know who it was, and I, I really liked it. And there was this moment about, I don't know, five or six years ago when I was at APAD in New York, and met you. I was like, oh my God, you're alive. <laughs> Which has got to be the craziest thing for someone to say to you when they first meet you. Yes. Yes, I am. You're living. You're still alive. <laughs> so Jefferson, I love your f- photography and you're in our collection, but your your work in the past bunch of years is sort of qualitatively different. The, the pictures feel very similar and they have the same kind of hauntingness, but you've done something that I've never seen anyone else really do, and that is this pairing with framing, with the frames. Can you? So, who are you, and how did, where did you come from, and what are you doing, and what, what is all that? Can you can you talk about that? Absolutely. First, um, I totally forgot to say thank you. I'm, I'm delighted to be on and and talking with both of you. This is this is really thrilling for me. Um, and Thank I you. always enjoy talking about my work. And Michael, I just, uh, I have to say before I forget, I just absolutely adore what you're doing. You know, Thank just you. everything. It's really inspiring. Thank you very much. Uh, um, you know, we all love photography. Come on. We do. We do. That's the common thread. <laughs> absolutely. So, um, yeah. So just to touch upon what you said earlier, you know, I consider the guys like Strand, Stieglitz and Steichen, the, the old masters of photography. I always, always, always return to them as a source of inspiration and, and frankly, as a knowledge base in terms of a way of seeing. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that they really followed trends as much as they just had a, a strong way of seeing the world, light and shadow and composition, and it informed everything, you know. Um, and like I said, I always go back to them. They're always... Um, something that I can find as a, as a source of inspiration and renewed interest. Wow. Um, I, and, I, and I feel the same way. There's something about that work that's so inspiring. It's so elegant. And it's not like conceptual photography. It's just beautiful photography. What's interesting right. for both of you, though, too, is you both have a desaturated palette. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of this timelessness yes. to yeah. both of uh, your ways of shooting and what you're, or what you're shooting and what you're producing. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, sorry, yeah. Jefferson. Continue. Oh no, that's quite all right. So, and to answer your um, the second part of the question about my frames is what I became intrigued on earlier on in my career was ways and mechanisms and methods to make my edition of prints, whether they be editions of 9, 12, 25, more of a unique statement within that edition. And what I eventually came up with after kind of years of kicking around ideas was to use the frame as that mechanism. So um, I would buy antique frames at flea markets and online, and then I would hang them on my studio walls or my apartment empty, and they would inform, um, the longer I looked at them, what they should hold, a cityscape, a seascape, a still life, a portrait. And then I would take the sizes of those frames to the darkroom with me, because at that time I was, I was analog only. Uh-huh. Um, and I would print my prints to fit that format and crop them. Uh-huh. And then what you'd have is something that was kind of a unique statement within an edition. Like it, I would still call it edition two of nine or four of nine. But collectors started to realize that, hey, this is really something interesting. And I have to be honest, it also helped with sales because, you know, collectors would see this and they would realize that the next one's going to be different. And if they wanted it and really had that desire to live with it, then they needed to jump on it right then. That's so Um, interesting. It's interesting to me because so many photographers, uh, fine art photographers, struggle with uh, honestly how do you how do you sell your work how do you get noticed how do you get collected i've seen wonderful photographers just give up at some point where they just it's just so hard and i feel like you have really um found something cool and uh, 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 brought new life to to already wonderful photography but i i can't get over how amazing the pairing of the frame and the image it is. is. It's like sculpture meets meets the photography. And so I liked what uh, Jefferson was saying, that they are truly unique combinations. And it tells, it even tells more story. That's, and the pictures, tell me about the pictures. I mean, they're, they're isolated and simple. And sometimes it's just a, a, a shot of ocean water or a hat or like there was one that was just, three blueberries on a (laughs) on a table or something and again you'd never think of putting up a picture of three blueberries like what what is that but in the this sort of white frame uh, that feels almost like a main countryside day like Mm -hmm. and it brought me back to like collecting blueberries in may like (laughs) in a way that a picture wouldn't have done right i mean that's and um that that's a great question because i think that what I'm about to say is a um, is kind of a cliche for photographers, and that phrase is that I use the camera as a visual journal. Um, basically, any cam- any guy who's ever picked up a camera or girl can say the same. Okay, obviously we're documenting our life and our travels and our existence, but what I want to do is a little bit more meta with that. Like the like I'm really, really, really just getting sp- inspired by what's around me. The blueberries, the raspberries, uh, the series on apples. Um, My son, who's now seven, he goes through these phases where he gets a little obsessed over certain foods and he'll eat them nonstop for a few weeks. And that is the reasoning behind those subjects. He was eating blueberries all the time. And, you know, as I would get him ready to go off to school, I just I'd see these blueberries getting hit by this morning sunlight and think, well, geez, that's my next subject. You know, off he'd go to school and I would take his blueberries that were uneaten and form them into a still life. Now, that is where the artist comes in because 
I can't tell you, Michael, how long it took me to arrange those three simple blueberries. <laughs> so it was just so. I mean, like all the little compositional elements that that drive me nuts sometimes, searching for diagonals, spacing between the objects. You know, that's where the, um, the work really comes in. Uh, or I guess you could say the, the artistry. Um, and, you know, you just keep shooting and shooting and shooting until it's right. Um, the same thing with my hats and my shoes. You know, the seascapes are all trips to visit my parents who live in Virginia Beach. Um, the solitary objects like coffee cups or whatever are my coffee cups. Uh, the shoes, they're all my shoes. I, I wear one pair of shoes until I can't wear them anymore. And then they become uh, still life objects, you know, so, and they, it just kind of documents my time here on this planet. Wow. So all of your pictures are real, are real th- moments of your experience as opposed to you get up and you think, what can I shoot? Like, I'm going to go look for, for a cool scene. You're, you're actually finding in what is really happening the elements that become your still lives. Yes, I would say about 95% of the time that's true. I can't fight sometimes getting totally inspired by an image that I see, either a photograph or a painter, and then having to essentially recreate that almost like a catharsis to, to get it out of my system, if you know what I mean. Like sometimes I, uh, God, I can't even remember the last one. Um, oh, it was, a, it was a painting that I saw by, uh, oh, what? Um, Joseph McCloskey, a California painter who specialized in painting painting oranges, uh-huh. and and that was his recipe. He he knew how to paint oranges like nobody, <laughs> and he made an entire career off of it. And uh, Joseph R. McCloskey, I think, is his name. And I, I remember seeing a painting of his, and I thought, this is so amazing that I have to do this. So I went out and bought oranges and I went to my backyard and I took stems off of trees and I super glued them into the oranges to make them look like real orange stems. I'm still waiting for that orange expert to call me out on that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> say, hey, these are not orange stems. Um, anyway, so I ranged it just so. And then like a, like a song that is stuck in your subconscious, I, I was able to get that, that painting out of my brain. I love that metaphor of it's kind of like a songwriter, you know, where you're just like you've yeah. got this beginning of a melody and you take that and you're sort of working through it, working through it, and then you have that breakthrough. And it's like I'm going to take existing oranges and other branches and find the light, find the – I loved how you described the diagonals and things like that. Can you talk more about what you look for when you're making art? Sure. Um, so I'm um, – I don't know if I ever told you this, but, you know, I'm not uh, – I'm a self-taught photographer. I have a degree in drawing. Um, and awesome. I studied a lot of art history and I did a lot of painting as well. I came to photography later in life. So, um, formal compositional skills were kind of, um, beaten into my subconscious by my professors. And I'm so <laughs> glad that that was the case because I, I actually think that composition is one of the great untaught skills in, in art school these days. Can, um, can, can I interject in there? So, so yeah. composition and teaching composition are sort of issues for me. And I'm always curious about how photographers approach this. Do you um, subscribe to the idea that there are like formal rules of composition that students of photography should learn? Or is composition an emergent property of organizing stuff? And it, I mean, how do you think about composition? Is the rule of thirds important? Is a leading lines important? 
Yes, all, all the above. And and when I teach, sometimes I do uh, private, you know, one-on-one uh, photography tutorials. And when I hear myself trying to teach composition, I mean, you guys are probably the same. It, it's almost like it's a it's a bizarre language that makes no sense because what I always find myself saying is, well, in composition, never do this unless it works, and <laughs> and always, always, always do this unless it doesn't work out. Because you always have that thing where, like, Michael, one of the images of mine that you mentioned earlier on, that that solitary tree in Central Park, that's breaking the first rule of composition. You don't want to put something dead center unless, of course, it works, but you know, which it, which it did in that case. Well, actually, that tree is in um, – Ruben had put together a list of, like, the top 50 photos to be – that you should see and that you should look at to see photography differently, and that image is one of them. Oh God! I'm you know that? It's you. in the fifty. Um, yeah, but okay, Jefferson. I'm gonna go to the mat on this one. This is the third, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I know, as soon as I heard Jefferson say it, and I was like, "Oh, Ruben's gonna." You know, I just don't <laughs> buy it. I don't. I, my argument is that it's not helpful to photography students to think about to have in their head these ideas like leading lines and rules rules of thirds because. Uh, in reality, that isn't, I don't think that's how you compose a picture. You, and the reason why you say, here's a rule, but in, until it doesn't work, I think that's actually sort of Monday morning quarterbacking. You're sort of saying, do what works, and sometimes it, it fits this, and sometimes it doesn't. Mm. And, and yeah. so, to me, the composition is really about taking the objects you want to put in the frame and moving them around in the frame effectively until, you know, what can I say? There's a harmonious thing happening there in some way. It doesn't mean you're putting the subject or that you can even isolate a subject. Your pictures are very uh, simple, but for most photographers, they do not have the luxury of an isolated object in a neutral field where you can put that object anywhere in the field. The reality is it's... You have a bunch of objects, and you're moving them all you, by perspective and parallax to uh, co- occupy different parts of the frame until they, Ikebana-like, have balance and harmony and something. Right. Isn't that a, a better way to teach beginners than to tell them to put a subject at a one-third point in the frame or to look oh, for a line? Absolutely. Again, to, to get back what I mentioned to you about uh, the term ways of seeing – um, I think that's what needs to be taught. And, and there's, there's, once you get uh, composition, um, you just get it. And, and you'll be able to realize that something just works because it works, and that's what you run with. But I, I am totally in agreement with you, Michael, about rules of third and um, the golden section. Mm-hmm. They can be quite limiting. And I yeah. also think that they can provide a false confidence. I think that um, students will say, oh, it has to be good. It's on the rule of thirds or this is the golden mean proportion. So there, I'm done. You know, um, <laughs> and then not reason. say like, uh, yeah, does this really work? I mean, an interesting thing about this is years ago, I was at Christie's and um, uh, I, I would assume everyone's a big Robert Frank fan. So uh, obviously I've adored Robert Frank since I could uh, uh, understand about photography. And Lo and behold, on the wall was a contact sheet by Robert Frank. And it was a mind-blowing experience for me because I saw the image that he chose. But the rest of that role of 24 or 36 
were the ones that he decided not to go with. And they were very, very, very close. And when I saw the one that I knew, I was like, wow, now you get inside of Robert's brain and you understand that why he chose that composition, because it had a more dominant diagonal. Mm -hmm. And there was also a little bit of motion blur on, on the subject. And it was it was just enlightening. And um, and you get to see like that's what that's how the grapes think. That's how they make their decisions. Oh, I wanted to ask, I'm like, what does your contact shape look like for the blueberries? Like that. <laughs> oh, well, it's, it's a lot more than 24 or 36, I, I have to tell you. How long um, did it take you to get that shot? Oh, um, God, that was well, maybe three or four years ago. Um, I don't know how to answer that because I only use natural light, and I have a front porch that is um, filled with antique uh, window panes on three sides, so... The light changes and shifts every 15 minutes as the sun moves. So um, I just kind of roll with it. I, I set up my camera on a tripod. I shoot with a bounce, you know, like a piece of foam core, basically. It's all very simple. And then I come back in 15 minutes to shoot again and to rearrange. And, and then it goes to the editing process, kind of, you know, the same thing that we were talking about with Robert Frank's contact sheet. Mm-hmm. You, you almost get a second shot. That's round two, right, for the editing process. And then for me... I actually get a third round, which the frame sometimes dictates yeah. a final composition. Interesting. <clears throat> it's so funny because oh, I have t- two kind of competing thoughts. So first, uh, Robert Frank. Um, so you know uh, my father got a bunch of Robert Franks, and uh, one of our favorite pictures was is called Street Line. I don't know if you remember this picture. It's a vertical shot. And uh, there's a person walking across the street, and there's just this long line down the middle of the street. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Okay. It's a cool shot. But um, the picture that we own is not the – like I Googled it once to sort of – because I I was putting it into this database, and I Googled it. And the picture that is famous isn't the one we have. It's The one that's famous is I think the frame right before it. And the one that we have, he only made a couple of, and I don't know why he only made a couple of them, because I, I mean, maybe because I grew up with it, I like it a lot more than the one that's famous, but that's so interesting to me, that, that compositionally just very subtly different, and maybe he was wrestling, I mean, like a lot of photographers, you probably printed both of them and stared at them for a while until he decided which is the the one he wanted to eat. To, I don't know, put in the show or something like that or sell to somebody. Actually, Jefferson, I'd love to know a little bit more about your background. Obviously, with photography, um, that has one sort of aspect of being an artist and a, and a visual uh, creator or visual maker. But as far as this, this sort of foray into combining photography and the visual image with almost sculpture, with these frames that you're you know finding and sourcing and making that connection between the two, is sculpture part of your background? No, it's not. Um, drawing, painting, and art history are are, um, are are what I studied in school, and I came to photography later in life. Um, I, I haven't done that much sculpture, but I will say a little word about the framing, and uh, it, it just kind of it, some of it came to me in kind of a very serendipitous way. Was that when I was early um, early on in my career, I would want to get my work framed whether it be my photographs or my drawings. And if you walk into a frame shop, um, you know, you're starting to 
uh, look at something that's like $100 just to start. Mm -hmm. But I could walk into the Chelsea flea markets in New York City and find an antique frame for $5. <laughs> and that frame came with its own size that I would have to work backwards into. But it also came with its own story and its own character and its own personality. And sometimes even its own family photograph placed inside of it. So I could know who owned it beforehand. And a lot of that um, can influence and inform my work. Oh, that's so interesting. So if you buy a frame and it has a family photo in it, um, what, like, what does that lend itself to that you want to then put inside? Can you give an example of a piece where you've done, um, where you've done that? Sure. Well, um, it, it just kind of lends a magic, I have to say. If, <laughs> if I know, um, yeah, that undefinable term, right? Hmm. If, if I know or see an image of the family that, you know, once owned this frame and possessed it 120 years ago, um, it just, to me, it makes it a little bit more special. And I, I remember that. Like, I remember all the frames that have come through my hands. Um, and, like, here's, here's an example is one frame that I took apart recently. I... Um, you know how the back of the frame people will use newsprint or basically whatever is around to kind of fill the space right. in the back of the frame. So I was taking the frame apart and there was a little girl's homework in there from oh uh, 1896. 1896. Wow. Yeah. And she was doing arithmetic and she was uh, doing um, penmanship and her handwriting was impeccable. I mean, it was stunning, absolutely stunning. And this little yellowed piece of paper was in actually pretty good shape because it was kind of um, not completely hermetically sealed, but it was it was encased. So uh, I found this page and I hung it up in my studio wall and it just, things like that are those little magic moments that you can find. Um, I also, sometimes you find handwriting on the back of the frame or newsprint um, that they use to kind of uh, cover the art. Um, really fascinating kind of a, of a provenance of each piece. Can you describe the frame that had the little girl's homework in it and then what piece of yours you ended up putting in that frame? Sure. Um, it, it actually, um, it led me to think that I needed to put something special in it. So uh, I had figured that this uh, girl was in a rural area because a lot of the terminology she was using were um, farming uh, measurements. Like, uh, I can remember uh, Bushel and Peck. Like, I, I've never <laughs> Isn't heard there a, a song, Peck A Bushel before. and a Peck? Yeah, from Guys and Dolls. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I see, I never, I heard of a bushel, but I never heard of Peck as a unit of measurement before. Anyway, um, a lot of these farming uh, and agricultural terms were on this page. So I thought it fitting to include a landscape in this. And now I'm a little bit of a frame historian. So, um, the date on the homework was, I believe it was either 1896 or 1892, and the frame was that same exact period. So I, I knew that this was, um, you know, special, and I knew it was, uh, um, you know, belonging to them. And what did you put in it, the landscape? I put on a, a very subdued and serene landscape. Wow. I mean, all your stuff is kind of subdued and serene. That almost be the... <laughs> the terms I'd use to describe. Okay, wait, you do these limited editions, like you might do six or eight or whatever you were saying there, but if each frame is unique and it sort of dictates what picture goes in it, how do you navigate that? Because you might have that blueberry picture, but that's not going to go in every frame, or is it? Correct. Or does it transfer? There's so much variance in my work 
Um, not only does each piece get, to, get its own frame within the edition, but size is also vary within the edition. Um, so I can make a postage stamp sized print if, if it's readable in that size. And I can also make it as a 30 by 40 or a 40 by 60 um, if it works. So there is, um, there's, there's a variance there. And I have to admit that I, I enjoy doing that because what it allows me to do is I, I price my work based mostly on the size of the print. And then the frame, the rarity of the frame also has a little bit of secondary influence on the price. But I like being able to offer a lower priced and smaller print to people who could not afford a 30 by 40. Because what that allows for me to do is to allow anyone the ability to acquire my work. And I, I really enjoy that because I, I don't, I've never believed that art is, is like an elitist thing. I think that everyone should be able to afford it and live with it in some manner. And photography in particular is a, is a populist art form. Any, uh, not only can Indeed. anyone own it, but almost anyone can do it and decorate their own home with it if they were so inclined. Correct. Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting too, from like the consumer point of view is it's twofold. One is if you're buying a print or you have a print and how do you frame it to be what you want? Mm -hmm. But with this, it's like you get the artist's intent. Like this is truly what they intended, the complete artwork to hang on your wall. Mm -hmm. Um, It's actually a perfect segue to a question we love asking. What is a photograph that you have hanging on your wall that is just your favorite or truly inspirational to you. Could you describe it? And then we'll ask you to send us a photo too, so we can put it in our show notes. Oh boy. Okay. So you've really stumped me now because (laughs) we're in the middle of a home move. (laughs) Um, So everything is kind of uh, in boxes and moving around. Um, As I'm doing this, I'm looking around to see if there's anything, um, and we usually, um, by the way, designate two images. One that's one of your pictures that you have up. Like, what's a picture of yours that you have displayed on your own wall? And what's a photograph, these are photographs, that someone else has done that you keep displayed on your wall? Ah, okay. Well, um, for the one that's my photograph, um, this one is uh, a slightly larger than usual work. I'm looking at it right now. And it's called Together, and it shows two vintage hats. One is a top hat, and one is a bowler hat, and they're sitting on top of each other. And um, What's on top? It, yeah, one is on top of the other, and it's called Together. Um, yeah, like, is the bowler on top? Is the top hat on top? Yeah, the, the bowler's on top, yep. <laughs> and um, the title is important, um, as I describe the story, because... Um, and also, I must say, I'll send you an image of this, but the image is, is, is it truly looks like it's a 19th century piece. I, I really pulled out the stops on this one in both <laughs> toning the print and finding a frame that was majestic and, and really important. So I can recall that the origin of this piece, I can recall uh, watching a video clip when New York State uh, legalized marriage equality. And Governor Cuomo was trying to gather the final votes that would allow this. And he was either at a table or a podium. I mean, this is this is many years ago. But he was banging his fist trying to trying to get his guys on board to pass this legislation. And when he did, he was he was just elated. He, he shouted into the microphone, New York is now a marriage equality state. 
I was watching this going, wow, this is a real moment in history. So then I thought like, well, how can I incorporate this into my work? So I took two symbols of, of masculinity, basically masculine objects, yeah. a bowler hat and a top hat. I put them one on top of the other on a white background and I called it together. And it's a very kind of subtle thing. Like not everyone gets it unless I really tell that story because it just looks like a pair of men's hats. I love um, that story. It's brilliant, man. But there's symbolism behind it. There's yeah. current events behind it. And um, I'm able to use that incorporated into my work while at the same time producing an object that looks like it's from 1864 or something. It's, I mean, again, a Robert Frank digression. My, I think my favorite photo in the ever that I have uh, ever owned is Robert Frank's uh, picture called The City of London or The Banker. Oh, and, yes. And it's a guy in a top hat walking down the street in London. Drenched in fog. Yeah, and it feels like it's from the turn of the century. I believe he shot it in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it has that same feel. This like uh, that must be a hundred years old, you know? It's just magical. Yeah. But yes, I, I'm looking forward to seeing your picture. I, um, what's one that is not by you? That's up. Um, okay, let me look around. Um, does that uh, does the little girl's homework? Uh, does that count? <laughs> um, photograph. Do you have a, photograph a photograph of it? <laughs> uh, no, it's not a photograph. Let me go down to my studio here. And uh, look around. We should have As like you're a... walking there, can you describe your studio? What is your or what is your studio like? <laughs> sure, it's a it's a pure mess. I have to <laughs> say, uh, as any artist studio should be, um, because I'm a framer and a photographer, both worlds collide in my studio. So there are boxes of glass, and there are broken apart frames, and there are frames that are partially restored and being um, coated with uh, oil and shellac. And then there's the whole other side that has stacks and stacks and stacks of prints. Um, my latest book is is out here as well, stacked up. And um, I have a chair to meditate in. I meditate every morning. Excellent. Uh, to kind of get my focus down. Um, and then there are all these objects. There's uh, sailor hats and uh, vintage shoes and vintage cameras and old wine bottles um, dug up from the earth. Uh, there is a comb that used to belong to my father. Um, all these little things that, that mean things and that have kind of uh, shown my path through the years as an artist and as a human. That's so um, cool. I, I was inspired by the way you isolate these family objects. A, a picture that I did around that time that I saw your early this work um, was an object of my father's uh, that I did at um, just when he had died, and it was it's a, a worry grinder. It's a strange object that he and my mom found in Iowa in the in the fifties or sixties, and I photographed it the way I think you might have photographed it. And hmm. uh, I think of you whenever I actually. I, I mean, it's in that I, I can see the inspiration in that. Uh, that isolated cool object, but it's different than if I just found something at a flea market myself. It's important because it was my parents' object yeah. and that I grew up with it. Exactly. Yeah. That you just reminded me of of something that I, I hope I don't get off on a tangent here. Oh, go but, for it. Um, mm-hmm. The photographer um, Ralph Gibson mm-hmm. has a theory that I, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, so forgive me if I don't get it completely right. But he has a theory that the artist eye, the artist's eye activates an object. And I know that that gets into a little bit of the metaphysical realm. But I think what he is saying is, is that because 
an artist is looking at a subject or letting it pass through his, his mind and eye, that in some way it lends a little bit of that indescribable magic to that object. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. It's just kind of, I'm really taking that in and mind sort of blown. It's like the idea of an artist is able to activate an object or even a person with their gaze. And if they're capturing that moment, then that's how they share that activation with the world. It's interesting. I think of that, um, I've often uh, felt that when you're looking through your pictures, you're trying to find the great one, like, you know, the street line from Robert Frank or all that you look through all of your pictures and you say, this is the iconic picture. This is the gorgeous picture. That's going to, that's way better than the rest. And sometimes I might argue they're all great. It's impossible to discern any difference. It's like two roads parting in the woods from Robert Frost. They're, Mm -hmm. They're identical. And yet by choosing one, it's made all the different sense. And I would say that when you choose a picture to print and make that the print that you've chosen, that imbues it with this specialness. But it, even the street line, as you said, there's multiple prints of this. There's multiple frames that he's chosen, right? I, you have a different one. I, I do have a different one, but it, but it's not like you're trying to find the great picture. You make it the great picture by printing it and deciding it is. I, I think that's a version of what Gibson's saying mm. in some way. Yeah. The magic I, comes I from the process. It's not emergent of the object. What I liked about what Jefferson uh, yeah. said earlier too, sorry, we're talking over you. <laughs> I was just, <laughs> no, I was just no, like, I just right. like what he said. Uh, but you, you sort of had described your process in three phases. Like one is taking the picture, one is editing the picture, and then one is a further edit when you're pairing it with the frame. It's multiple rounds of almost activation or process curation. Yes, yeah. And I also have to say that at each round... Failure can occur, and you know failure is is right around the corner. And, and I even get to this third stage. You know, I I'm so close to my work as all artists are that, you know, I think I have this great union of image and frame and print and all together, and I send it off to exhibitions, and it comes back, you know, um, and it keeps coming back, and nobody wants to live with it. And then what I have to do is kind of re-examine it, like. Did I not do this right, or should I re-examine this, or or whatever? It's just it's such an amazing process. Did we get to actually the other photo that wasn't his? Oh yeah, what was the other picture? No, we didn't. Um, let's see. You know, um, I am. I have to admit, I'm drawing a little bit of a blank on that. You just can't look around. Um, There's nothing on your wall you can look up at and say, "Oh, that one." Well, and to be fair, I he's mean, moving. It's all in boxes. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that's why it's so hard. Um, um, you know what? Um, yeah, here, here is one. Um, there is a photograph. Uh, can it be a photograph? Just not mine. Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's the point. Yeah. Um, so we live on a historic street. Uh, we live right outside of New York city and this area was, uh, very important during the American revolution. And, um, you've all heard of the American, uh, trader Benedict Arnold, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so Benedict Arnold's co-conspirator, his liaison, was a British spy named Major John Andre. Mm -hmm. And um, Benedict Arnold got away, but Major John Andre didn't. He got caught with the plans that Benedict Arnold gave him hidden in his boot, and he got caught around here. And they caught him, 
and they uh, tried him for treason in the local tavern, which is, um, I can see it outside my window, and they, um, they found him guilty, and they marched him up uh, in front of my house in the year 1780 and hanged him and buried him there. Wow. And um, his existence on this planet and the fact that he got caught with the secret plans is basically the history of this country. Like, had he gotten away and never been caught, we would have lost the war. It was, it was that pivotal, that important. And the, the fact that I'm looking out at his monument right now out the side of our house window is, is really amazing. So over the years, people have known that uh, we live right near this historical marker, and they have uh, sent us little mementos, little postcards and books and everything about um, Major John Andre. And uh, that's what I'm looking at right now on my wall, a, a vintage postcard of the monument. That's a great story. I have goosebumps, to be honest. That's really cool. That. Um, I have another question. Your work is so powerful, almost in its subtlety and beauty and sort of s- stillness. I find myself looking at these images, whether I'm seeing them on Instagram or whatever, but much longer than I look at other images. How would you describe your work in one word? Hmm. How would I describe my work? Boy, that is a tough one. <laughs> Um, I would have to go with peaceful. Hmm. Yeah. Or now that I said that, now I'm going to change it to meditative. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like that. I find it ironic that your photographs or the, I mean, I, I think of you as a photographer, even though they are these sort of multi uh, mixed media creations, really, mm-hmm. with the frames, that um, they're so simple you know, like three blueberries or an empty thing. And yet I feel myself looking at them for a long time in the way that you would normally think you look at a picture that has a lot of complexity, that there's a lot going on and, yeah. and you're, you want to print it out to kind of feel the, all the little nuances in there. But your pictures are so simple and yet they still command that kind of um, falling into them and spending time with them experience, which I find so ironic. You were using a word earlier before we started recording um, about this idea of drift. And I, I felt that that was a great word for his work where you sort of just drifted in and it felt like almost like time sort of moved, was still moving, but it was very slow and you got sucked in. Drift. I was point. I showed her, I showed Jefferson, I showed her the picture from about 2003, maybe. Uh, I'm certain it's New York. It's like a building and a blimp. And the building is oh, not yes. quite vertical, mm-hmm. and the blimp is not quite horizontal. <laughs> and, I, and whenever I look at that, it's like I remember it all the time. In fact, every time I see a blimp, I think of it. But um, yeah, it just is it, – it's like a leaf in a, a still thing of water, but it's not still. It's just move. It's just moving a little bit. It's almost like I stare at the pictures, hoping something will change, like a shadow will shift slightly, or <laughs> the wave will move. Like I just expect that to happen. Well, think about Fred Barnes' stuff. Remember, we we interviewed uh, a photographer a, a couple weeks ago, and he creates animations out of his still images, but they move slowly. Mm-hmm. It, it's like. He's doing what you do, but with video. Like he's trying to create that and using real motion to make it happen, and you're doing it in a still image, if that makes any sense. Oh, I love it. I'd love to see his work. 
Oh, well, it's uh, a couple episodes ago. We will connect to you. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank um, you. So you I love you wrote that a term, book. too, Michael. Oh, go ahead. Drift. I just, oh, sorry. I love that term, drift, by the way. Love it. Do you, do you, does that resonate with your, like, as you think about your, I mean, I don't see the drift maybe in, like, the blueberry picture or, or some of them, they, but they, again, they, they pull you in. Maybe the drift is not, it's not literal. You were using it as, like, a literal, like, a, an alignment um, word, but then the way I interpreted it was, and I was like, oh, I love that word for his yeah. work, because it was almost like my my feeling as I sort of fell into it, and I was waiting for, again, like that little bit of motion, like you're, you're drifting. Tiny, yeah, that tiny, that tiny, like Brownian motion, you know, the little yeah. kind yeah. of movement. Um, can you tell me, a li- so you photograph all these still objects. I don't think of you as a portrait photographer or a landscape photographer in any kind of classical sense. Maybe, maybe you're a still life photographer. And yet you have this other set of pictures of your children. And they're just gorgeous as you would imagine they would be from a wonderful photographer who has a sense of drift. I guess you've just been shooting your kids like, but your daughter has become a supermodel from this. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yes, they're a constant, constant source of inspiration. And I eventually plan to do a book um, showing all these years of works of me documenting their um, their uh, their lives and everything. Um, but yes, my my daughter, um, oddly enough, um, my daughter named Harper, uh, she's 10 years old now. Um, she was our first child. So I, I was, you know, this new creature, this new being is in our lives all of a sudden. <laughs> so I'm photographing her constantly. And um, she uh, has super blonde hair. Like, I mean, it's almost like silver. She looks like, uh, like you know, the Queen of Dragons. Today, so I was going to say, is she a Targaryen, right? <laughs> yeah, she's a Targaryen, yes. Um, anyway, so I was photographing her and just kind of posting these images on social media. Hey, here's my daughter. And next thing you know, somebody finds it and picks it up and forwards it to someone who owns a modeling agency. Uh, that was, uh, let me think about this, that was six years ago. Uh, when she was four and we get a call out of the blue and can we meet you and your daughter? And next thing you know, she's uh, a professional model. And, um, and now she does it with, um, you know, a lot of regularity for some, some, some big brands, Tommy Hilfiger. And, um, uh, let's see what, what else, uh, uh, Hannah Anderson and, uh, uh, Zappos and, uh, yeah, she's working on a lot of different projects right now, but yeah, my, my children are a constant source of inspiration for me. Uh, my son too, Beckett, we named them after authors. There's Beckett, uh, named after Sam Beckett and Harper named after Harper Lee. What do you think of, um, photography on social media, Instagram in particular? Oh boy. Well, this brings up a, a question that I could literally spend three or four other podcasts on. Maybe we should do that. <laughs> we could have and that is too. basically the state of where we are, right? And I'm sure you both have thought about this a great deal, as have many others. Whereas, um, where are we right now in the history of this medium, where if you have, let's say, two to three thousand dollars that you can um, that has, has disposable income, you can arguably possess gear that is very, very close to what the professionals have and own. So anyone can have that level of technical competence or, um, uh, or um, potential, let's say, technical potential with this gear. 
But then, obviously, it takes so much more than that. So we're overrun with everyone having a camera right now, but not everyone being a photographer. And I, it brings me back to a quote that I just heard from Chuck Close yesterday, mm-hmm. was that photography is the easiest of all art forms to become technically competent in, but the hardest to find your true voice. It's a great quote. Wow. I love that. Well, I think, do you think it has to do with the fact that it seems like the tools are so, especially the tools we have access to now are on our phone that we carry with us, but these tools are so sophisticated that you have to, you know, that you're like, you get to a base level of medium mm-hmm. pretty quickly, but then to truly be great, it's, it's so much different than picking up a paintbrush. I can see when someone's an awful painter, <laughs> but <laughs> so it's clear when they get really great, you're like, oh, wow, they're excellent. But photography, there's still that medium level that is reached so easily. Well, I mean, technology democratizes all this stuff. Like it, it used to be a, mo- a lot harder to be a writer or a, an artist of various kinds, a filmmaker, uh, music maker, and the technology lowers the barrier to entry. Everyone can be a marginal writer or a marginal right. musician pretty easily. But you still have that, I don't know, Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000-hour line, right? (laughs) It's still hard to do. I I think one of the things that I'm always – one of my neo-modern soapboxes is that just – I feel like there should be a renaissance in creative photography now that everybody has his cameras. It doesn't mean that everyone's a photographer, but people can – get learn to do it and get better at it by doing it it just doesn't come by just taking a lot of smartphone pictures you really need to work at it but you can and i'm hoping there's like a renaissance in creative photography because so many people have cameras and are exploring this do you agree i think there will be i i do agree with that and i actually think it comes down to uh a, a mere understanding of numbers the more people that do possess the technology the greater number of people who are really going to devote themselves and go with the Malcolm Gladwell, Gladwell rule of, of logging in those, those 10,000 hours to become something more than just someone who, who photographs the blank stare. Do, do you think it hurts photography that everyone's doing it? I mean, a lot of people say photography is dead because everyone's got a camera and it means nothing anymore to take a picture. No, I don't, I don't believe that. I've heard that argument and I, I don't subscribe to that. Um, I still think that the people will shine. The great ones will shine throughout the, uh, the, the rest of the people who are just kind of like doing it half-heartedly. And I, I, don't mean, I don't mean to say half-heartedly. Not everyone needs to be an artist, of course. You know, um, again, this is why I thought first off the bat that this is such a, a deep subject. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going. I do think it's definitely another uh, another episode. So would love to have you back. Um, but before we kind of close the show, you mentioned that you've uh, you've written a book. You have a bunch of copies in your studio. Can you do you want to plug the book? Would oh, love sure. To hear about um, it. Yeah, the book is called uh, "Things I Saw Without You." And, oh, great title. Um, it's uh, thank you. It, it is a. Uh, it's divided into um, uh, different subjects: uh, still life, cityscape. Uh, oceanscapes, um, and a few pictures of my children are in there as well. And um, I am, it, it's my first self-published book, and I'm, I'm really enamored with it now. And I want to do a new book every year. Um, in fact, um, this, this uh, book has a subtitle that's just called One, because my next book is going to be, wait for it, 
coup. <laughs> like I see where you're and going. And it's going to be, uh, it's yeah. going to keep going and keep going. And um, yeah, it's printed with um, uh, Edition One out in Berkeley, California. Mm-hmm. Um, a great company with a great team, and, and making the book was was incredibly enjoyable. And uh, I will, I'll send you a copy. Oh, I'd love to see it. That Thank would you. be wonderful. That would be really cool. Um, where can they purchase this? Um, online. Uh, if you go to my website, which is jeffersonhaman.com, um, you can um, see the availability and send me a request. We will put it in the show notes. It sounds, sounds awesome. Um, Jefferson, this has been fantastic. I could talk to you all day. Um, I feel like you're family. I mean, I've known you only for... I don't know, 15 years, but, <laughs> Likewise. but, you've, been, <clears throat> but you've been part of, you're part of my family. So I, I, I love your work. Um, I, I can't wait to show people some of your images because I think they're going to just be stunned. And again, it's not just the image, it's the image frame combination. Uh, like Stephanie from the other day, it's not always just the image. There's so much about context and what's near it and what's around it. Uh, you know, Neo Modern is a framing business, and we tell people it's about the picture and it's not about the frame. Like, you just want a classic, simple frame to highlight your photograph, and then here you are with this amazing, different kind of framing combination, and, you know, prove me wrong. So, thank you. <laughs> Definitely next level. <laughs> next yeah, Jefferson, level. thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Everyone listening, go buy his book. I want to make sure I get this title right Things I Saw Without You. Is that correct? Correct, yes. Wonderful. Um, The first of many books. Our show is recorded and produced in San Francisco. Go to neomodern.com slash podcast to get show notes, see photos, and post comments. Leave reviews and ratings on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you subscribe. And don't forget to tell your friends. We get new listeners from you telling everybody and spreading the word. If you know someone who might get something from us, please send them a link. Thanks to Mitchell Foreman for our theme music, Jefferson for joining us, and all of you for hanging out. We appreciate your attention and hope we've given you some things to think about. Until next time.